Well, my thanks to the music team uh, this morning. Uh, I don't know about you, but I certainly found that the arrangements of some of those songs spoke to me, and I'm very grateful. Have your Bible open, please, at Proverbs 3, 13 to 26. And there is an outline, as always, in the bulletin. Shall we pray? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good, well, we're, we're almost at the end of our journey, aren't we? Um, we began our series eight weeks ago now by asking uh, why so many Christians have made God weightless in their lives. And we've been suggesting that the main reason for this is because they don't really know who God is. Uh, they might have been going to church regularly for many years. They certainly know about God. But along the way, they've never been truly overwhelmed by a sense of God's majesty. And so each week we've been looking at a number of different aspects of God's character so that we don't make the same mistake. Now this morning, in our final study, we're looking at God's wisdom. And it is no accident that this study comes last. Because we can think of all the other attributes we've been looking at as, if you like, bricks in the same wall. And together they, they give us a picture of God's majesty. But wisdom is slightly different. Wisdom is the cement between the bricks. Uh, in other words, if we really get hold of wisdom, if we understand it, if we actively pursue wisdom in our own lives, well, it will hold all of those other attributes together in our hearts and in our minds so that we do see God for who he really is. So then, what is this wisdom? Uh, when we think of wisdom, I suppose most of us think of it as a human achievement. Uh, we immediately think of the intellect. And so naturally, when we come to the Bible and what the Bible has to say about wisdom, the kind of question we naturally want to ask is, well, is there a school of wisdom? Uh, is there a curriculum? Is there perhaps a reading list? Will there be any exams? Mercifully, the answer is no. So what then is wisdom? Well, the answer is a real surprise. Because according to this text, the first thing we need to know is that wisdom is an investment. It is an investment Verses 13 to 18. Now, if you ask uh, anybody who's involved in investment, and Michael would be a good candidate, 
they will tell you that the golden rule is to choose your advisor very carefully indeed. If you pick the right advisor, well, you'll still be able to sleep at night, even when the markets are collapsing around your ears. So I think it's important to say right at the beginning that the advice in our passage comes from King Solomon. He's the human author of most of the material in Proverbs. And of course, he was one of the richest men in the Old Testament. Indeed, the author of Two Chronicles says that Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. I take it then that Solomon knew a good investment when he saw one. And so here, in verses 13 to 18, we have the Old Testament equivalent of a prospectus. Uh, A prospectus from a man who really knew what he was talking about. And in his prospectus, Solomon makes a very bold claim. Because on two occasions, he says that the person who follows his advice will be blessed. Uh, He says that once in verse 13, and then he says it again in verse 18. Now don't misunderstand. Uh, That is not Old Testament code for material blessing. This is not the prosperity gospel. No, the word in the original simply means happy. The person who follows Solomon's advice in verse 13, the person who finds wisdom, the person who gains understanding, will be happy. Yes, that I think is a very bold claim. And by nature, we're probably rather sceptical about it. Uh, The advertisements on television imply, don't they, that if we buy a certain type of car or if we use a certain make of hairspray, we will be happy. And of course we know that's total nonsense. And so when we read verse 13, we immediately want to ask, is Solomon's claim any different? Why should we trust it? Solomon gives us two reasons. First, he says that we will get back a great deal more than we put in. So in verse 14, he says, Wisdom is more profitable than silver, and it yields better returns than gold. Now, I think that's rather helpful, because it reminds us of the basic principle in all investment that in order to get something out, I must first put something in. The returns don't simply drop into my lap without us doing something first. What we have to put in, well, we'll see a bit later. But the second reason Solomon gives for why we will be happy if we follow his advice is that wisdom pays the dividends that the whole world is looking for. Just look at verse 16. He says, Long life is in her right hand, 
and in her left hand are riches and honour. Now, whenever I'm driving to church on Sunday mornings, I can't help noticing the sheer number of people out on the road running or cycling. Many of them are part of a much larger group. And I've started to realise that these larger groups are a kind of church. Because for many of these people, you see, it's not just about the exercise. There is a religious aspect to it. Um, I have a couple of non-Christian friends who are part of this Sunday morning fraternal and whenever I ask them about it, they tell me that it's all about uh, being fit enough to work harder so that they can afford a certain lifestyle and then live long enough to actually enjoy it. And the implication is that if they're able to do that, then their lives will have been significant. And as far as they're concerned, that is the wise way to live. And uh, they tell me all this in rather condescending tones, as if I must be really rather simple not to have realised it myself. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be fit. And there's nothing wrong with achieving riches and honour through hard work. But what is wrong is pursuing those things all the time, leaving Almighty God out of the picture. Because, you see, the Bible says that's not actually wisdom at all. It's foolishness. Now, what we need to learn is that compared to human wisdom... The Bible's wisdom pays in a different currency. What is that currency? Well, in the Bible, the truly wise person might enjoy long life. They might enjoy riches and honour in this present age. Solomon certainly did. But it isn't always the case in the Bible... And it certainly isn't always the case in our world today. No, to understand the dividends that wisdom pays today, we have to read this passage first in its original cultural context. Because, you see, in Solomon's culture, these, these trophies of long life, of riches and honour, were a sign of God's favour. In the Old Testament, they were a sign that a person was approved by Almighty God. But you see, with the coming of Christ, all that has changed. Jesus was poor. The disciples were poor. The majority of Christians alive in the world today live in the third world. They are poor. And more often than not their life expectancy is short. So what then is the sign for the believer in 2019 that he or she is approved by God and that their lives really do have meaning and significance? Please notice in verses 17 and 18 there is a sudden change of language. 
Uh, we've moved on from the world of investment and wisdom is suddenly described as a journey. Verse 17, her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. In other words, uh, wisdom brings with it a profound sense of peace, an experience, if you like, of the shalom of God And it sets us free from the restless search for meaning in all the wrong places. Now, if we ask, where does this peace come from? The answer in our passage takes us right to the heart of the Christian gospel. Because in verse 18, we read that wisdom is a tree of life. What on earth is he talking about? Now, on one level, of course, a tree is an image of stability and fruitfulness. Uh, That's not really surprising, is it? Because we would expect the life of the truly wise person to look rather like that. But we also know, don't we, that the tree of life appears in two other places in the Bible. So we know that there's a tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And in that context, the tree of life represents the happy relationship which Adam and Eve enjoyed with God in the beginning. But of course, when they rebelled, they lost it. Their happy relationship with God was broken. And you remember, they no longer had access to the tree of life. And then the tree of life is mentioned again, isn't it, in the book of Revelation, where the promise for believers is of unrestricted access to the tree of life in the new heavens and the new earth. And it's talking there, isn't it, about the happy relationship with God being fully and perfectly and permanently restored. Now that I think helps us understand what Proverbs means when it describes wisdom as the tree of life or as a tree of life. It's saying that when we see a believer living wisely, it is a sign that God is at work preparing that person for eternal life in the age to come. It's a sign that person is approved by God. Now that is why wisdom really is one of the best investments any of us can ever make. So we're back in Proverbs 3 because the second thing we learn about wisdom in our passage is that wisdom is a worldview verses 19 and 20. Now, friends, this is where we have to make our investment. This is where you and I have to put something in in order to get something out. And the investment that we make is the effort required to develop a truly Christian worldview. 
Now I think some of you know what a worldview is, but some of us might not. So let's get it absolutely clear in our minds that there are four things we need to know about a worldview. First, a worldview is the set of beliefs we hold about the world and the way that it works. It's the framework through which we try to make sense of life. A worldview is the lens through which we look for answers to all of the really big questions in life. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? The experts say there are seven uh, different worldviews today. Only one of them is Christian. The second thing we need to know is that everybody has a worldview. Whether you realise it or not this morning, you have a worldview. The question is, do you know what it is? And does your worldview reflect reality or not? That's a really important question. Because thirdly, a worldview works like the operating system on your computer. In other words, most of the time it's sitting quietly, silently in the background of your life and you don't even know that it's there. But all the time, your worldview is exercising a controlling grip on your diary and on your wallet on the way you spend your time, on the way you use your money. In fact, it exercises its controlling grip on all the choices you make. I wonder if you knew that when you came to church this morning. And then fourthly, because a worldview is both silent and controlling, it is possible for us to be completely self-deceived about where we really stand. For example, it is entirely possible for us to say we have a Christian worldview when in fact we're slaves to a completely different worldview, like materialism, for example. Because you see, in a worldview, there is no daylight whatsoever between what we believe and the way that we live. So, uh, imagine for one moment someone who claims to be a Christian. Uh, He comes to church almost every Sunday. He's in the midweek Bible study almost every week. He's one of the most um, articulate people you know on Christian doctrine. But uh, we can't help noticing that he arrives at church in a Ferrari. Uh, It is the latest model with all the extras. And uh, there's a sticker on the rear bumper which reads, The one with the most toys wins. He has a succession of pretty girlfriends, but the relationships never last for more than a few weeks. 
and his relationships with people in church are superficial at best. Yes, he does know the names of the men in his male Bible study group, but outside that, he knows the name of no one else. Now, by definition, that man does not have a Christian worldview. There is a fundamental inconsistency between what he knows about Jesus and the way that he lives. And his lifestyle proves that he is completely self-deceived. Now you might think that's a rather trivial example, but there's a marvellous test we can all do to find out whether we have a Christian worldview or not. The test is to ask ourselves one simple question, and it is this. Is Jesus a category in my thinking, or is he the driving force in my life? Because, you see, if the truth is that instead of being the driving force in my life, Jesus is actually only a category in my thinking, If I only ever think about him at church on Sundays and the rest of the week I live by a totally different set of values, well, I'm afraid I don't have a Christian worldview. And that means, you see, I haven't yet discovered the wisdom which Solomon insists is the best investment in the world. Now, in our passage... Solomon gives us the core conviction of a Christian worldview, and it's there in verses 19 and 20. He says, By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the deeps were divided, and the clouds let drop the dew. Now Solomon is saying, you see, that the ultimate truth on which he has based his entire life is that God's wisdom is embedded in creation. It's the DNA of the entire universe. It's there in the system of natural laws by which God has brought order out of chaos in the physical world. And you know perfectly well that if God were to suspend any of his natural laws like gravity or thermodynamics at any moment, well, the immediate result would be chaos and destruction, wouldn't it? And what applies in the physical realm is true in the moral realm as well. God has given us his moral laws for the ordering of all our relationships, our relationship with him and our relationships with each other. And if we ignore his moral laws, chaos is sure to follow. And it is all part of that same wisdom. And so the wise person, uh, the person with the Christian worldview, recognises that vital connection and he or she adjusts their lives accordingly. See, that is why in perhaps the most famous 
proverb in the entire book of Proverbs, Solomon famously says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9 verse 10. Now what on earth does that actually mean? We all know it. But what does it mean? Well, when the Bible talks about fear and the fear of the Lord, it is not talking about cringing terror. Rather, fear, in that context, combines two ideas. It means, on the one hand, reverent awe, and also, on the other, submissive faith. Both of those things together. And so, dear friends, if we ask, why has God become weightless in the lives of so many Christians today? The answer is because both these things are absent. They have no reverent awe for Almighty God, and their faith is conditional, not submissive. In other words, they obey God when it's convenient and not otherwise. And what then about the word beginning? What does it mean to say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? Well, the word in the original can mean the starting point, but it can also mean the chief principle. And I do think that's the idea here. Now, pulling all that together, we could paraphrase Proverbs 9, verse 10, the most famous verse in the whole of Proverbs. We could paraphrase it like this. Reverent awe for the Lord demonstrated in submission to his word is the chief principle of wisdom. Reverent awe for the Lord demonstrated in submission to his word is the chief principle of wisdom. Now the implications for our lives are huge. Because you see, if I'm going to experience the pleasant ways and the peaceful paths that God wants me to enjoy, well I need to examine all my decision making from God's perspective, don't I? Because, you see, God has decreed how life works in the world that he's made. And so to ignore what God has said and leave him out of the picture is actually to live outside the structures of reality. Now, is that wise? No, it's not. And yet, how many Christians are doing precisely that? Rather, the path to wisdom begins by pursuing a reverent awe for God. And that means getting to know God as he's revealed himself to us in the Bible. And then asking him for a submissive faith that actively obeys him in every area of life. That is what it means to have and to develop a Christian Worldview and wisdom starts right there. And that brings us thirdly to the fact that wisdom is a witness. Verses 21 to 26. 
Now, the, the, the picture that we have in these verses is not of the person who is shielded and protected from all of life's storms. No, it's rather of the witness of the wise person through all the ups and downs of life. And I think we don't perhaps always realise just how powerful the quiet witness of a wise person really is. In verses 21 and 22, Solomon says, My son, preserve sound judgment and discernment. Do not let them out of your sight. They will be life for you, an ornament to grace your neck. That's an interesting phrase. Uh, In Solomon's day, an ornament around the neck was a badge of authority. And uh, what he's saying, you see, is that the person with a Christian worldview, the person who thinks about their lives from God's point of view and makes their decisions accordingly, that person is someone that other people look up to and admire. They say to themselves, you know, I'm not sure what it is that person has, but I sure wish I had some of it. We have a friend in the UK who is actually a marvellous example of what we're talking about. Uh, She's not academically gifted. Uh, She's not a high flyer in business. She's not wealthy or prominent in the community in any way. And she certainly had more than her fair share of life's problems. But whenever she opens her mouth, people listen. People go to her with their problems. And you see, in her quiet way, she invariably brings a fresh perspective on the situation. In other words, in the language of verse 22, she has an invisible ornament of wisdom to grace her neck that is naturally attractive to other people. And the same idea is present in all the other situations that are mentioned in these verses. Look at them with me. Verse 23. Your foot will not stumble. In other words, when society is falling apart, there will be no moral collapse in the life of the person who's following the way of wisdom. Verse 24. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. In other words, no matter how difficult the circumstances, there will be peace of mind because, verse 26, the Lord will be your confidence. See, whatever happens, the the wise person knows that they are eternally secure because their confidence is not in their circumstances. It's in the Lord. I said at the beginning that that wisdom is the attribute of God that holds all the other attributes together in our minds and in our experience. So we shouldn't be surprised, should we, to find that the wisdom of God finds its most complete expression in the Lord Jesus. 
Because you see, all of the other attributes of God that we've been admiring in our series are there in him, aren't they? In Jesus we see God's character. He is the word. We see God's glory and God's holiness and God's faithfulness. Yes, for those with eyes to see it, the majesty of Almighty God is wonderfully on display in Jesus. So in light of that, as we bring our series to a close, I would like us to look at one final cross-reference together. It gives us, I think, the clearest picture of the contrast between human wisdom and godly wisdom. And it highlights the choice that faces every man, woman and child. Turn with me, please, to page 684. Matthew chapter 7. The words, of course, are instantly familiar to most of you. Indeed, some of you were studying them together yesterday morning. But I do hope, in light of today, that you're going to see fresh treasure in them. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. The Lord Jesus says, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, and there are plenty of them, is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. I mean, the words hardly need a comment, but what Jesus is saying is that if you build your life on him, if you make it your top priority to listen to Jesus every day and do what he actually says, well, you will find the strength you need to stand strong through all the storms of life. And you will know that the best is yet to come. Now, friends, according to the Bible, that is true wisdom. Proverbs 3 promises, Blessed is the man who finds wisdom. Have you found it yet? Let's pray. Our gracious God, we we thank you for revealing something of your majesty to us in this series. We ask that each one of us might know what it means to fear the Lord and that we might be people of true wisdom 
and that especially in our birthday month that people might be moved to ask the reason for the wisdom you have given to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.